I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Gene, the podcast where we dive deep into the extraordinary lives of families navigating the world of rare disease. And I'm your host, Evie Parks. In today's episode, I had the privilege to speak to two wonderful, remarkable friends and individuals who are not just rare disease parents, but who are also on the front lines of leading the patient advocacy organizations of the disease their children have. They are dedicated and their job demands relentless advocacy. So today's conversation takes kind of a unique turn and we're peeling back the curtain on the often unseen struggle and the delicate, challenging juggle of leading an advocacy organization while being a parent to a child with a rare disease. It is a journey filled with endless tasks, immense stress, and a level of commitment that few can really fathom. Our guests open up about the need for support, understanding, and recognition of this monumental effort from behind the scenes. This episode isn't just a conversation, it's a call to action. It's for the leaders in the rare disease community who might find solace and solidarity in these shared experiences. And for those considering starting their own advocacy journey, it's a treasure trove of insights and expectations. And for families who are a part of organizations, it's a little window into the daily lives of those who fight tirelessly on their behalf. So whether you're a longstanding member of the rare disease community, a new face eager to make a difference, or if you're simply here to learn and support, this episode will move you. So please welcome my friends, Kim Nye from the Tess Research Foundation and Mike Gralia from the Syngap Research Fund. Hello, Kim and Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you two today. Today we're going to kind of talk about something that I feel isn't really a topic of conversation in the general landscape. I'm sure you guys probably text each other in the middle of the night about these topics, but I think this is going to be a really good place to sort of have an open and honest dialogue about all of the stuff that goes into being a patient advocacy organization leader and a parent and a partner and all of those things. And I think this will be really valuable for the families to understand kind of the enormity of it all and how best they can all show up and contribute, but also for your fellow patient advocacy org leaders who can kind of find some solidarity and maybe um, ping some ideas off of each other on how everyone can, I don't know, sort of best manage all of the things. Okay. So long intro here, but I want to let you both maybe share a little bit about yourselves really quick. I'm also going to link your past episodes in the show notes here, but Mike and Kim, could you both share a little bit about yourself and the moment that you realized that starting a patient advocacy org was not just an option? 
I'm Kim Nye, and uh, I think my biggest claim to fame is that I have four children, and two of them have a rare disease, and they were among the first diagnosed with their specific uh, genetic disorder. It has a very unmemorable alphabet soup. It's SLC13A5. And it's a citrate transporter disorder. And because they were among the first diagnosed, nothing was in place. And it was it became clear very quickly that there was a real need to organize our patient population and try to organize our research community and all the other stakeholders. And so we started Test Research Foundation in order to do just that. So my son is Tony. He's nine. Um, I, he's one of two sons and he's only one affected. And he was diagnosed five and a half years ago on his fourth birthday. And I, it, the world was different than was Kim was diagnosed, right? It was, there was a lot going on. Kim is one of the leaders I went to and met and heard everything she was doing and said, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I also talked to, you know, the Dravet Syndrome Foundation and others and said, it really does make a difference if there's a patient advocacy group pushing on the science. And there isn't one for Syngap1 that's doing that. So I need to start it. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I, I'm glad I did it. I am still doing it. I'm going to keep doing it for a long time, but I had no idea what I was getting into. And the past five years have been nuts. For two years, I did it as a side hustle. And then at some point, my wife and I agreed that nothing was sustainable. And so I left my career and I've been doing this pro bono now for three years. And it's just incredible how big this this role is and how much it takes over your your life. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe both of you give me your perspective on kind of like those first bits of, I don't know, maybe shock for a lack of better words of just how much work this is and the enormity on this and the impact that it has on balancing your roles as a as a parent and as a patient advocacy org leader. Like Mike said, like, it seems like, okay, I can probably do this on the side. This is clearly not like, you know, in my mind, it doesn't, it didn't feel like a job or even a career heading into it. It felt like a real calling and a real passion project. And so I think because there's so much emotion and heart behind it, it was easy to fool myself that like, oh, I can just do this for a few hours a week. And then it became clear that although we are nonprofit by name, and I think people assume that that means like part time or hobby or just a fun side thing, it's actually running a small business. And so you have a lot of stakeholders. You have the families who you want to do right by and you want to listen to and you want to figure out, you know, what is most important to them in terms of quality of life and where they're struggling. And then you have a uh, research community that needs money, needs to be connected with collaborators. You have uh, industry where you're trying to say, hey, our gene, our disease is worth studying. And you're really building this nice package of data for them so that it's easy for them to study. Uh, and then you have your donor community where you're trying to say, I know there are so many good causes, but can you see it in your heart to help support our cause? Because we're a really good one too. There's a lot of gratitude, but there's also just a lot of work. Uh, and there are, you know, staff members that need to be paid and need to take vacation time. And so it very quickly becomes a, a full-time job that uh, really seeps into every moment of your day. And because there's so much passion behind it, you know, I find myself willingly, you know, doing projects on weekends and evenings, even though I'm also doing it by day. So it, it's been eye-opening to see uh, how much work there is to do and how much time that work takes to do well. Yeah, that's why. I let Kim go first because she says everything so well. I mean, I, just, just to simplify that, like intellectually, this is a full-time job. 
like as Kim says, and, and you, you have to remember the, the easy stuff, the lab experiments, the designing tools, the, the basic experiments, the, the scientists and the companies know how to do that. The scientists and the companies call us with the things that they're stuck on, right? So we are paying ourselves nothing, working on a shoestring and multi-million dollar companies and well-funded labs at prestigious universities call us when they, when they get stuck. Just, just think about that for a second. And our job is to connect the dots and say, well, have you thought about this? And have you talked to so-and-so and, and to really fill in those gaps, right? In rare disease, there's not enough resources. So the gaps are huge. And the patient advocacy group, the way I increasingly think about it is we are, we just sort of are the glue that goes in and fills all those gaps and stretches ourselves out to connect the clinicians and the researchers, the industry, the funders, the investors. We have to talk to all of these constituencies. And, and get them to talk to us. And that's just half of it because the other half is the, you know, Kim said passion and I, I say heart, like, you know, we have our own sick kids, we have our own families and we have to, to be effective in our job and to speak credibly for our community, be a connect with that community, which means we can go from a call with an investor in the morning who's like explain to me why I would invest in the Singap One company to a lab who's like, I can't keep working unless you give me $150,000 to a mom who is just diagnosed and is freaking out to a board member who wants to know why their project isn't done yet. That can be one morning. And then you turn around and your kid's screaming and you're like, I'm doing all this work to help my kid, but I'm right now my kid just poured a bottle of ketchup all over the floor, did something else insane because I wasn't paying enough attention to them. There are moments when I'm just like, oh, am I doing, am I really doing this the best thing for my kid right now? And you go from this very heady intellectual endeavor to a real existential moment of, am I a good parent or spouse, or am I taking care of myself such that I'm gonna last long enough to see any of this work through? And it, it's just, the struggle is, 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 is intense sometimes. Uh, Mike, you just said so many things there that we could put pins in. And thank you for that visual of the glue. I think that's really helpful. But yeah, even down to the to the basics, right, of like the daily realities that we're all living and that you're feeling on top of kind of holding all of these planets in the air. I wonder if both of you can maybe expand a little bit on some of the unseen challenges and like the behind the scenes challenges that you're facing in your advocacy work that most people just really aren't aware of. Sure. I mean, I think Mike explained it so well. There's that that guilt pang of if you're if you're fighting this battle for your entire community, you know, are you handling the home front, you know, well enough? I think people assume that I have this like extra bandwidth than they do at home, right? But really like what I'm facing at home is very similar to what a lot of our families are facing at home. And that is a lot. <laughs> and so trying to, you know, tell them, I, I will try to uh, lead our organization and be, you know, an upbeat, fearless leader, but I'm also, you know, facing the same things each and every one of you are. Like I am one of you. And I, I think that sometimes that gets forgotten by our community because we all so need someone who is like fighting for us. And I am so honored to be one of the people fighting for our community, but it is still a challenge at home and, and it's a changing uh, challenge. We're all kind of in our own place on this journey. And for me, you know, that has been um, an evolving place. I now have a daughter who is about to turn 20. So really we're in this transition to adulthood, but I very much remember what it was like in those baby phases. And so it's, it's been a never ending education, but it's also had its own, you know, 
trials and tribulations every step along the way. I would add to that. So everything, I agree hundred percent with everything Kim said. I think people somehow think people, you know, we, we live in a culture of superheroes, right? So people are like, Oh, you're a superhero. So you can do this. It's like, actually, no, I'm not a superhero. I'm a dad. And my kid gets mad at me and my other kid is mad that his kid, his brother is sick. And there are days when my resources are just low. And yet I feel like when you get that random message from a parent who is facing some new crisis, like reflexively, they reach out sometimes to me because I, I'm the, the leader of our organization. And they say, Mike, how do I deal with this? And I have to I have to respond to that and I have to give them my attention and hopefully I have to, I can connect them with someone else in the community who can help them because I've got to go to a meeting or whatever it is I'm doing. The emotional demands of this role just grow as the community grows. And the thing I think about a lot also is there are times when I come out of calls with parents and I'm just like, wow, I really need to let other people have these calls because you're sitting there feeling what these newly diagnosed families are feeling or even not newly diagnosed families who are going through some kind of crisis and you have to sort of support them and then walk away and take a breath and um, push forward. And I'll, I'll give you a very concrete example. Like right now we are, we are having, getting ready for our conference and we're scheduling family day. Um, and there was a, a bit of a um, discussion around, okay, Mike, we need to have the family day just be family support. We need to make sure all these families connect with each other and talk to each other and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, we can do that. And we also need to talk to them about registries and clinical trial readiness and you know what, what studies they should sign up for. And people were like, oh, but we're always talking about that. And I'm like, yeah, but we're always talking about that because the only way out of this is better medicine, right? Like there are, there, there's so many families experiencing so much hurt and those are just the diagnosed ones. There's thousands more of undiagnosed families who are going through these same trials and tribulations. And, and our, our focus must be on better medicines. And, and it was, you know, people were very passionately telling me, no, Mike, we should just do family support. And I was like, that doesn't get us over the finish line. And it was, it was, uh, it was a really hard discussion. And it was, frankly, it's still ongoing. I don't know. I just, we get pulled in so many directions and I feel like our communities don't really understand what we're doing on the industry side and the industry side definitely has not fully internalized our roles because I was at a conference last week and someone's like, so you run a patient advocacy group and it was just a very nice person. They're like, so what do you actually do? Like they, they just couldn't imagine that there was enough work to fill a day. <laughs> and that, 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 that's when I, I think Effie, I called you about this episode. I was like, oh, I, I do a lot. Just so hilarious. I mean, really, I can't even, I can imagine your face in that moment. I, you're, it was probably half open and you were probably doing your blinking thing really fast. <laughs> oh my God, I don't know where to begin with that one. I don't know, Kim, what do you think? Yeah, Kim, what about the emotional toll that this work takes on you personally and what is maybe not visible to others? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we're developing drugs that are cutting edge. So for, you know, our community, we're developing a gene therapy drug. And it's a drug that our community has a ton of hope invested in, right? Like this is our clearest path towards changing the trajectory of this horrible, horrible disease. But it also comes with risks because it is cutting edge because we are among the first, you know, doing things like this. And, you know, my we includes Mike and all the other patient advocates that are, you know, out there 
there listening and you, Effie, I mean, all, all of us, we're, we're really at the forefront, I think, of some of these precision therapies. And that is exciting, but it's also scary. And I think for me, it's a lot about balancing that risk versus reward. And that for me is an ever-changing line. This summer, we had three little girls pass away in just a few weeks span. They were one, five, and 10. I mean, they were just babies. And, you know, I think I've been so scared of, of getting this drug exactly right that I sometimes forget that there is an immense urgency, like our kids are literally dying. And so it's really balancing out, you know, that that pacing, that urgency with uh, making sure that things, you know, are done well and that we're not skipping corners. And that to me is a real uh, a struggle. I, I legitimately love these children in our community, even if I don't know them well, like I, I feel like they're my nieces or nephews in some crazy way. I know that makes me sound like a crazy person, but it really is an experience where, you know, our, our individual identities get changed by this diagnosis. And we are put in contact with families that are experiencing a journey that that very few others, you know, experience in a similar way. I totally feel that. I'm so sorry about the loss in your community, Kim. And I think so many of us feel like all of these children are our children in one way or another, right? And I think that's what makes our community so special. What about some decisions that you've had to make or that you know your friends have had to make? What are some of those tough decisions as a leader in your foundation that you've had to make that, again, people may not realize the toll that it takes on you or the tough decisions that you had to balance between your family, your foundation and others' families? I think for me, one of the tough decisions um, it happened a few years ago was this shift from being all volunteer and having every penny go towards research and other people's labs to instead having like a full-time scientific director at Tess Research Foundation and having, you know, inside staff and becoming a more professional organization. But that also meant changing how we had traditionally funded things. And you know, for us, we have been very lucky in the sense that we've been able to get grants that cover that internal capacity through Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and PCORI. Um, but that for me was a big change mentally. It was a big change in terms of the messaging, I think, to our board of directors and, and to our families and even to other uh, researchers. But it's been the best decision we ever made. Like it really has helped us continue to run this marathon at a sprinter's pace. I want to I want to answer your question, Effie, about tough decisions. But before I do that, I want to I want to just pick up on something Kim said in her last answer that I think was really perfect. Like when you have a rare disease kid, you you start to under you start to think that nobody else gets your kid but you, and then you meet other parents and you realize, oh, thank God, someone else gets my kid. Most people relate to that. But the third step in my experience there is then you start falling in love with all of these kids. And I think what I saw, we had a, we had a family staying with us recently and their, their child is, you know, twice Tony's age. And this mom was sitting at our kitchen table with my, with my neurotypical son, John. And Tony, you know, landed a punch on John and John cried. And, you know, I'm like, whatever, I see this movie every 12 hours. And this mom who has taught me a lot and is a dear friend, started crying. And I was like, Monica, are you okay? And she was like, she won't mind me using her name. And she was like, I just, it just brought me back to when my son hit my other kids and I couldn't protect them. And it was almost like she had just been re-traumatized. But also, you know, her affection for, for Tony and John is so real that it just, it was just real. And, and I think, you know, that was me seeing that other parts of this community love my kids. But it's also been very clear to me lately in a few calls when I hear about 
bad and unfortunate things that are happening to our Singapians, that it just hits me hard. And I have to figure out how to hear these stories and support these families and not need to, you know, go to my safe space and cuddle up with my teddy bear or something. Because sometimes I hang up the phone with these families and I just need to take a deep, deep breath. Because we, I care so much about these kids and, I'm, and I know that people in my community care about my kids, thank God. But it's, that's a really big part of this. Like, I think the emotional toll goes up over time. And then as far as tough decisions, I think I'm right behind Kim on this one. I'm a, I think I'm, we have gone with a certain model for the past five years and I am starting to really ask myself the sustainability question because I can't work hard enough with my, you know, one and a half staff people to keep up with the pace. And it's not fair to my family for me to just work 60 hours a week. I, I, I need to find a different model. And so, you know, I'm sort of trying to figure out how to take a train that is rapidly accelerating and kind of rebuild it. And it's, that's the thing I'm getting stuck on right now. Yeah, um, I'm feeling you from Ezzy getting punched last night and having this conversation with her about it to the point about the organizations uh, setting it up more of like a professional organization or a business model where there are employees and people are accountable and you're not just um, relying on everyone's best efforts and showing up because they care, but making it more of a model. I think it's definitely becoming more accepted, right? But do you feel like there's still a little shame or some apprehension by org leaders to not go into that model for one reason or another? Yes. I think that um, nonprofits are expected to have this incredibly high percentage of their funding go towards their program. And I think that they're is this thought that if you have someone helping with development or you know administration or science, that somehow that is a, a misuse of funds. You're gonna suddenly dip below that, like 90% is going towards our mission. But I, I would really argue otherwise. Like I would argue that the salary that we pay to a scientific director goes a lot farther than giving out like one additional research grant in another lab. And I think even if we pulled the labs that we you know, are funding or, or work with, I think they would say the same at this point. So I, I hope we can get to a point where donors and you know families and boards and they, everyone can understand that you have to, that your money is actually well spent by having a, you know, a scrappy, dedicated, small team. I'm not saying we're all going to, you know, balloon where every penny goes to to staffing, but I think having a small team really is a a smart financial move. I totally agree. <laughs> 100% agree. I think, you know, because at the end of the day, your volunteers are family members and these family members have sick kids or you're going to extended family, aunts, uncles, grandparents. And that's great. But, you know, for there comes a point where people go from doing one thing to doing a few things to, to just getting really in it. And at that point, you, you're dependent on them. And if they say, wait, I got to step out. I've had a couple of people with big hearts and lots of skills come in, get into it, keep getting into it. And then after six or 12 months, be like, whoa, I need to step back. And I get that and I respect it. I, I I can't do it myself. I don't feel like I have permission to do it myself, but I understand how they need to. But then they step back and I have this gaping hole in my organization. And so 
we are gradually starting to identify and fill roles, but I think there's a there's a big conversation with boards. And the direct answer to your question, Effie, is you know it's been nice to be able to say to donors for the past five years, every penny you give us goes to research. We are an all volunteer organization, and I pay overheads. And we may keep doing that for a little while, but I think the ethos needs to change because when I started this, I really thought. This is a key step for me. When I started this, I really thought we just need to put more money into the science and then it'll work. And I missed two big things. Number one thing I missed is actually, no, we need a patient advocacy group. We we are not just a fundraiser. We are a connector. We are a bridge between industry and, and clinicians and researchers and investors. And what I missed is that the science doesn't matter if you can't get it to the patient and you get it to the patient through the clinic. And if you think funding science is expensive, try funding clinical work, right? That's the punchline. Like the clinical stuff is where it gets really expensive. And for that, you need a larger functioning organization and you need partnerships to help share the burden. And you can't do that with an all-volunteer crew. So, you know, I think we started this podcast talking about, wow, I didn't understand how big this job was, but... It, it, that translates directly into, I didn't understand how big our work is as patient advocacy groups for rare diseases. And that just goes into everything, right? Yeah. And I think to piggyback on that, like having, we still need our volunteers. For all the volunteers out there, please keep coming to us and volunteering. But having a staff that can help organize those volunteers and assign them appropriate tasks. Like we we always said, boy, it'd be so fun to have uh, interns. But until we had a scientific director who could help manage our internship program, we really didn't have the bandwidth to even figure out how to utilize those types of volunteers. So it really becomes this like rich ecosystem of you know paid people, volunteered people. Uh, it, it's It's really heartwarming to see it all gel. But I do think it needs someone who is coming to work and being compensated, you know, to, to help uh, lead those types of, of efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Both of you kind of touched on guilt a little bit, using this as your full-time job, basically working 60 hours a week, maybe taking away time from your own family and your own personal personal sacrifices. And I wonder if anything is at top of mind or if there's a, a personal story that you have of a sacrifice that you had to make in order to keep your foundation's running. I mean, I think the sacrifices are daily. So I I have so much guilt, maternal guilt, any kind of guilt you want. I've got it in there somewhere. Um, I think that for me, I have to remember that I chose to step up and be the patient advocate. But like my other, you know, my teenage daughters, they didn't choose to. Even my husband didn't necessarily choose to, right? Like I've kind of brought my whole family into this and they've been amazing. They have truly supported me and supported our, you know, broader uh, organization in so many ways and for so long now, almost a decade now. So I have nothing but gratitude for them. But I do have to remember, like, this is the path I chose. So, you know, I can't expect that they are going to travel exactly my path. And I have to remember that I am choosing to have, you know, my children who have this disorder, Tessa and Colton, they, they have become the face of this disease to some extent, especially in the early years when there weren't that many patients diagnosed. But I have to ask my two other girls whether they want to be, you know, the face of our organization. And I have to respect it if they say, no, I don't want to be in your Instagram post today <laughs> um, or, you know, something similar. So I think I have guilt over trying to do right by everyone that I love. And I'm lucky enough to love really a lot of people 
people, but that comes with, with a, a fair amount of guilt. <laughs> just the beginning of Kim's answer, like the, the sacrifices are daily, like this, this just slowly creeps in and takes over your life. And for me, I mean, like Kim, you know, I have a very supportive spouse who's very much behind this organization and, and, and helped, you know, encourage and has encouraged me every step of the way. But I think for the decisions I make around John and how I feel like I'm constantly not being with John enough and outsourcing his care to more and more people is, is where I just, I am really feeling the challenge right now. And I was just thinking as you were talking, Kim, when you said a decade, like it was, it was five years ago when we met. So, you know, when, when we, when I came to you and asked you and starting SRF, like you were kind of where I am now, it's sort of weird to think about, but it's not a specific decision. It's an endless list of decisions that touch everything. It's like how we vacation, like we generally hang out with other families. It's my travel schedule. It's so, so much. It's, it's hard to say, oh, this was a thing I did because the, the, the work and the job continues to grow and demand more and more. It sounds like both of you are kind of in a pretty profound like time of reflection, which I think is really cool. But I wonder, looking back on your five and your 10 year journey, that what are some of those key lessons that you've learned that you wish you knew at the beginning? And especially what would you bestow on a new family entering our space? I think that for new families, don't reinvent the wheel where you don't have to. I think a lot of us start our own organizations because we're trying to rally our communities around a very specific cause, often a genetic disorder, but look for those opportunities to collaborate, to learn from um, you know, other groups. Whether you make the same decisions as them is up to you, but at least you know, take the time to try to not have to reinvent the wheel. I know that at this point, Whenever we make a decision, I do like a quick, what I consider like key opinion leader analysis by just reaching out to some other, you know, patient advocacy leaders and saying, hey, what'd you do in this problem? And that is so helpful. I don't know, Mike, what words of wisdom do you have for, for newbies? The thing I think about hearing you and I talk right now, Kim, is I think about like Pat Furlong and Marianne Mascus, right? Like the real giants who are so far ahead of us. And every time I hear Pat for a long talk, including on your podcast, Effie, like I'm just like, wow, this lady has done so much. And like I say to my families, when they're diagnosed, I'm like, look, we're in this together for the rest of our lives. Like you're, you know, our kids are, you are in the same club for the rest of this game. So like really, Let's let's think about how we're gonna, you know, think about getting now that you know this diagnosis. This is my little speech. Now that you know your diagnosis, like, you know, reorganize your life accordingly in terms of therapies and whatever. But then, like, you, you don't have to start volunteering tomorrow. You can start volunteering in six months, and then let's think long term. And what I the, the single piece of advice I would give is that think long term. Every mom and dad is like, what can I do in the next one or two years to save my baby? And I was right there. I started an organization. I, I funded an ASO on day one. And that ASO is sitting in a large company right now who's throwing it at mice. And, and I've gone from, I need to secure Syngap and Tony to, okay, if, if these therapies that we're investing in get into Tony's brain tomorrow, which they won't, he's still going to be, you know, neurodiverse at best, disabled more likely for the rest of his life. But I still need these therapies to reduce his suffering and reduce the burden on John when I'm gone and be able to help all the kids 
who are diagnosed and who aren't around the world. So, you know, the, the mindset you're in when you're panicking on day one is so different than the reality that is staring you in the face. And we have to think long term. I love what you said about the reality that you face right away and long term. I want to touch on something else. I'm not really sure how to ask this question, but I wonder, you know, you talk about this empathy, this extreme empathy and maybe even sort of compassion fatigue that you get as a patient advocacy organization leader because you're doing all of these things and then you're also getting the calls from the family and the worriedness and the new diagnoses. And I wonder, one, should that definitely be handled in-house by a specific, like, person or little committee so that you can focus and or if that is the case you know I know you kind of maybe did this a little backwards maybe not Mike of where you were like oh yeah we need the patient part too and then you created just the most flourishing and beautiful and empowered patient population but not every patient advocacy org has evolved like test research fund and Syngap research fund and there's kind of a sticky dynamic between org leaders and patient advocates and their families how best have you found to kind of cultivate that relationship and nurture that relationship so it's not necessarily mom and dad telling you all what to do and then all of you thinking mom and dad have everything covered behind the curtain and it's all rosy for them like how do we have this sort of transparency between the org leaders and their patient group as more of a team mindset? That's such a great question. I think for me, we were really clear about what our organization was from the beginning in the sense that uh, we wanted to find better treatments and we were really focused on research. So we didn't start out really as a patient support community, I think we've been so fortunate to grow into that, but we've had our support mostly as individuals. So when I join a support call or when I talk to another family, I feel like I'm very much there as Kim, as you know, a mom who has traveled down a similar path, maybe has learned some things, definitely has made a lot of mistakes, and I'm there to share that. I, I don't really wear my test hat in those situations because I'm not really qualified to to give you know professional advice about these hard things, but we try to find um, the correct supports. Like when one of the kids in our community passes away, we try to find bereavement supports. If you know a family is really going through a specific struggle, we try to connect them with the leaders. So I definitely show up, but I show up as Kim each time. And I think that that has, has served us well. And I've certainly learned a lot. And I've been so grateful to have the support of the other parents um, who can help me through some of these struggles as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't touch the support calls anymore. I, you know, I used to host like a, a weekly meetup of families and now I'm really grateful that there's some other people in our community who drive that people still sometimes reach out to me or they reach out to me directly with things like, you know, it's, it's amazing how much, how much challenge people can pack into one text message where I just look at, you know, it pings and, and you know, it's messenger or it's Slack or it's whatever. And you look at it, you're like, Oh God. And so I just try to pass those to the people in my team who I'm so grateful to that want to take that on. But I think the question you really ask Daffy is like the way I, th the way I think about it is how do you balance explaining to everyone what's going on versus this very knee jerk temptation to be like, would you please just trust me on this one? Right. And that goes over well, almost never. Right. You're like, you know, like, I'm like, we need to have these things on the agenda. 
but this wasn't the agenda that we brainstormed. Yeah, but you really don't want to go into like the three hour discussion about why I, I think this is an essential component. It's tough. I mean, it's part of this, it's part of the struggle and it's part of the, as the organization grows and as the disease becomes more enmeshed in the academy and industry with the partners, like the level of nuance and sophistication goes up accordingly, right? And then when you're having those conversations, the challenge is how do you take an empowered community and invite them to keep going, right? Okay, great. Now you're a volunteer group leader. Okay, please go to this advocacy training or please come to this meeting with me. And it's not going to make sense for the first few meetings, but eventually you'll start to you'll start to figure this out. Like this is like the most hectic slow motion movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I feel like I'm constantly <laughs> running around and responding to something that's urgent. But in actuality, I've been at this for five years and I do not have a new drug for a kid yet. <laughs> like what the, I, I just kills me. And, and yet I still go to like rent meetings and ELC meetings and combined brain meetings and epilepsy benchmark committee meetings. And because they all feel important and there's all these important initiatives that are going to really result in something and some publication in two to three years. And it's just like, you know, I think part of the, the, the emotional and no, emotional, the intellectual challenges. Okay. What are the things that I really need to focus on? Like what's a priority and what do I have to let go or delegate? And if I delegate it, am I okay if no one picks it up? Because that's the point I'm at right now. Like uh, there is just three days of work to do every single day. And I've got to decide what's urgent, what's important. And what can I just be like, sorry, we missed it. Something else you said that was really important in there, Mike, was you can understand it if you keep showing up. And I think that's something that we hear from people all the time, right? It's one of the quips that are here of like, oh, I don't get that science part or, oh, I don't get that this part. Do you, if, if you keep showing up and if you keep listening and if you keep asking questions and if you keep maybe just being open to intrigue, you're going to eventually understand it and you're going to be able to contribute somewhere. I completely agree. I mean, so many of us come into this space without a scientific or medical background. Um, and I really do think that there are important pieces that can be learned instead of, you know, knowing them heading in. And, and I would actually say that some of the science is some of the stuff that you can learn along the way. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but I, I do think that one of the things that Mike touched on with some of these consortia that we're a part of or some of these larger projects. And I think the the other part of that is attending a lot of meetings that I guess help us with business development, help us see like, oh, this technology is appropriate for our disease versus this technology. Nope, that's not going to work for us. You know, we, we each are there to use our uh, to, to view whatever is happening through the lens of our disease. And I think that is a really important piece that we're not just championing our causes, but we're going out and we're seeing, okay, here's where the science is. How do we catch our disease up to science and make sure that we don't get left behind as, you know, as these treatments move forward? You mentioned the queen of the land, Pat Furlong. And I wonder, how do the both of you see the landscape from how much you've contributed in your disease groups? Like, how is rare disease going to evolve from your contributions, do you think? Do you hope? I think it depends sometimes on the incidence and prevalence of the disorder. So ours is an ultra rare disorder. So I think it would have been easy to leave it behind and forget about it. And, you know, because of that, I think that we've, you know, had the 
privilege to really drive the research, not just organize the, the patient community. Mike may have a slightly different experience of serving more. I think in his last podcast with you, Effie, he said that they were the lighthouse. And I loved that analogy. But I don't know, Mike, what do you think? What has your experience been? I think, you know, just like Kim has, has driven the research because of the very small incidence and prevalence in her disease, we have the chance to bang the drum on on the undiagnosed rate. There's a lot of, and I won't give the speech right now, but there's a lot of reasons to believe that there's a lot of Syngapians out there. And, and if you know anything about our clinical presentation, you understand that it makes sense that many of them have not been diagnosed or don't get diagnosed for too long. So that message we have been able to champion and, and we've, I think we have, and I ask industry this all the time. I'm like, am I wasting my time? Like, is this a vanity project? Like, am I making a difference? And the industry people, a number of people have said to me, there's a no, they say we would not be working on this gene if we didn't think there was a functioning patient advocacy group to engage with. Because at the end of the day, if you have a great therapy and you have preclinical models, but you can't find and communicate with patients, you don't have a product. One of the things I keep saying to people, like having a functioning respectable, effective patient advocacy group is an essential, it's, it's, it's um, necessary, but not sufficient. It's an essential component of getting a therapy for a drug. These biotechs, which are risking millions and you know, CEOs are risking their careers to, to work on our drugs, they need to know there's a patient advocacy group to work with so that they can not just find patients, but also learn from them because the, the literature is by definition, you know, years too old. And there's a lot more patients now. We know a lot more about the disease. And so I think one of the contributions of SRF will be that we have helped put, helped keep Syngap on the map. And we have given a lot of people the comfort they need to continue working on it. I have 20 different grants in flight right now. That's 20 different labs that are working on Syngap with our support. Right. So we don't know which of those postdocs will go on and what what of those things will result in therapies. But that's a heck of a lot of work. And, and I think we have also just as Kim very graciously and kindly, you know, taught me a lot five years ago and keeps schooling me on a regular basis. You know, I get a lot of phone calls and I give people encouragement and I tell them these are the dumb things I've done. These are the smart things I've done. And how can I help? Because the other thing Kim just said that's exactly right is we're not just there as a sales and marketing team. Like we are asking the question, does this make sense for a neurohaploinsufficiency with a broad phenotypic spectrum? Like we are, we are, we are testing um, because everybody who sends you a proposal to get a postdoc for two years to work on their technology will tell you how their technology will help your kids. But you've got to be discerning and go to scientists and others and say, does this make sense? Should this be one of my top three? Or is this person just looking for, you know, a warm body in their lab? And this happens. So, but I think the real contribution of SRF is A, we've helped others. B, we've been radically transparent, or I try to be with my podcast and, and really just let people see everything we're doing. The other thing you said, Effie, that got me going was the future of our disease. Like, I am amazed at how many people how often I have this phone call with two young, driven, smart parents with a very sick kid with a disease no one's ever heard of because there's only, you know, pick some double digit number patients in the world. Even if they have the money, which they don't all, there aren't right now enough labs to do this the old fashioned way, right? Go find a lab, have them work on your one gene, get a therapy, blah, blah, blah. Like we, we need platforms. We need things that scale. There are so many rare diseases, epilepsy, autism, ID. It's all getting fragmented into all these little monogenic causes. And soon it'll be polygenic. 
How, how are we all going to do it? We're all going to go fight over the same 25 scientists? That doesn't make sense. So I, I think, you know, SRF has hopefully helped a few people. And I, we, I, I believe we have kept Syngap on people's radar and given people the comfort to do it. And now I think we're going to keep pushing. And I'm really fascinated by the future of this space because it, the, the change, there's, the change is, um, is radical and it's ongoing. And then when people look at me and say, well, Mike, how do we not have a five-year plan? I just laugh at them. I'm like, dude, the world's changed three times in six months. <laughs> if I started writing a five-year plan, A, it would be wrong. B, it would be outdated when I finished it. Like I'm working on a one-year cycle here. And, and I, don't, I really don't think people understand that because you've really got to be paying attention to understand how quickly things are happening. Yeah. Kim, do you have anything to add on to that about the future? I am like a, a hopeless optimist. I, I think the future will bring great things. Like I, I agree with Mike, like as, as frustrating as it is that we have, that we don't have treatments for our kids and um, for our communities yet. Like I really do think that we are making progress and I, you know, I can see the return on investment for our disease in terms of you know, giving out seed funding and sort of fertilizing the field and now watching it grow into these beautiful networks of researchers. And I, I remember the initial list of questions that we you know, had. I mean, for our family that had a 10-year diagnostic odyssey, the question was like, what the heck is causing you know, this horrible disease in my daughter, right? And now we've moved you know, all the way forward to like questions like, what is our timeline for getting this treatment into clinical trials? So that is exciting. It is never fast enough for the families affected, but I think that there will be true improvements. It might not be C, cure with a capital C, but I think there will be solid treatment so that a child goes to the doctor, gets diagnosed with one of these rare disorders, and there is an actual plan in place instead of the messaging that I'm so sorry, nothing exists that will help your child go home and love him or her while they're still here. Like That is what we're changing. Boom. All right, you two. What message do you have for fellow foundation leaders and advocates who are struggling with this dual role? Oh, go get a cup of coffee, maybe a glass of wine too, and play on a nap at some point. <laughs> like it's going to be an exciting ride. Um, and you're going to meet the best people that you've ever met in your whole life. And it's going to be exhausting. You're going to have down moments like Mike and I have both, I think, shared our vulnerabilities and our exhaustion. But then you're going to rally and you're going to rally because the people around you will help you rally and you're going to do great things. Yeah, and, and I would say, you know, at the beginning, you're really frantic and you're looking around and you're wanting the people to talk to you and you're trying to figure out what to do and you have to have this energy that you're missing something. And then at some point that that turns into, oh my gosh, my calendar is a brick wall and I don't have time and it's, it's 2 p.m. and I haven't had breakfast yet. Like what's going on? And so I would just say, you know, protect your time, like focus on what really matters and, and, and what really matters is, is your family and your health. And, and then the work of the foundation will evolve and, and, and just, just get out of panic mode and recognize you're in this for life and plan your time accordingly. Because that is, that is the, I have gone like a man on fire for five years and I need, and it's like Kim said, you know, I need my glasses of, I need my coffee. I need my milk and cookies with my sons. I need my glass of wine occasionally. And, and I need to manage my time differently going forward because I'm never going to stop working on Syngap 1 
and I want to ensure that the future comes as fast as possible, but I cannot do this with my hair on fire for another five years. Mike and Kim, thank you so much for your willingness to be so open and vulnerable. I really believe that your honesty in sharing this stuff and all of these challenges that might not be seen all the time or talked about all the time, I think it's really incredibly brave and I'm really appreciative of you and I know so many listening will be also. And I know what an impact you have had and will have and you're both just so special to me and our community. So thanks for being my guest today and I love you both so much. Love you too, Effie. Thank you so much. Same here. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 